encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to please open it to the book of Genesis, chapter 48. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's one located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated. As you're turning there, I want to take a moment just to give you an update on what's been going on with Emma and our family this week so you can continue to pray and just be aware of our needs as we continue on this, this path. Uh, this week has certainly been a, a week in contrast. Monday through Wednesday, Emma was as alert and responsive as we've probably seen her since this began, answering questions with a nod of her head or a shake of it no, and uh, pretty complex questions. Jody quizzed her on where she graduated high school, and she knew very clearly that she had graduated from Providence Academy, um, which just, we praise the Lord for that. Uh, Thursday and Friday were very different. Uh, she hardly woke up any those two days. So we went from where she was extremely responsive to really not much at all. This, needless to say, caused our hearts to sink. Even though we've been told there will be times like that. I spoke with a friend of mine who's a doctor and he reassured me, you know, Mark, with any neurological issue or injury or trauma, the brain needs rest. And there will be days where even a concussion patient will respond quickly and then their brain just says, I'm tired and I need to rest. And we saw this yesterday. She was a little bit more alert. So continue to pray that we'll have more of those days like Monday through Wednesday. And continue to pray for her swallow and cough. They are getting stronger. And we found out God is using something that, quite frankly, Jody and I were nervous about. He's using it to strengthen her cough and her swallow. As spring came, uh, Emma, like many of us, struggles with allergies. So we were very concerned about how that drainage would impact her. She's you know, not able to cough. This is gross, I know. She's not able to cough anything up. So we were worried about the drainage and what impact that could potentially have on her lungs. The speech pathologist told us that that drainage is actually a good thing because as she feels it, on the back of her throat, it will help stimulate that sensation that she needs to cough. And so what we thought was a bad thing and something we were scared of, God is actually using to help bring about healing with her. And we thought, man, isn't that like our God, to take what we are most afraid of and to say, I'm using it for the good. So please, as you think of Emma, pray that her cough and her swallow will get stronger and that we will continue to see improvement, please. Genesis 48 is where we are going to focus on, not only today, but next Sunday. But I want to go ahead, I want to read the chapter in its totality so we can get a feel for the narrative. That's one of the hard things about preaching or teaching in Genesis. Genesis is a story. And if you're not seeing the whole thing in one view, it's like coming in halfway through a movie or at the tail end of it. You, you get a feel for what's going on, but you don't get the whole drama that has been unfolding. So I want us to see the drama, the, the narrative unfold as we come to this very poignant moment where Jacob is at the end of his life. And as he approaches death, he desires one thing, and that is to pass along the blessing of God. So let's start at verse 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, so please follow in your copy of God's Word. After this, now the, the this, and isn't it irritating when a pastor starts to read and then stops? Just, just deal with it. 
The this is where Jacob had looked at Joseph and he had really, in essence, said, Joseph promised me one thing. When I die, don't let my bones remain here in Egypt. Take me back home. Promise me, Joseph, take me back to the promised land. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, 
By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, Go, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant us eyes to see. As we read this text, Father, we confess that it is your inerrant and inspired word. We also confess that we are dependent upon you to understand your truth and to apply it to our lives. So, Father, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would be drawn closer to you and transformed to be more like Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray, and the church said, Amen. One of the many things that I've learned in this journey that my family's been on for the last six months is that prolonged suffering gives a clarity about what is really important in life. You begin to see what really matters. You begin to see what is really petty and what are the things that we really need to be concerned about. I was talking with one of the chaplains at the hospice house about this and he said, Mark, what you're saying is this. You have learned that you no longer have the privilege of being petty. I'd never heard it put like that. The privilege of being petty. You see, when you're not consumed with things that are of an eternal nature, when you live day by day not recognizing that life is brief, you have the privilege of being petty. You can get upset about things that really don't matter. Now, I'm not saying that I am living in this perfectly, but I do have a different perspective when something goes wrong. A waiter or a waitress messes up the order I'm able to step back and say, you know what? Does it really matter? And the majority of the time, the answer is no. See, I think as the church, we become consumed with the power of the resurrection. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to live in that power. But we shouldn't live at that power to the neglect of the cross. You see, we bear our crosses with the power of the resurrection. We carry our crosses daily, believing in the hope of the resurrection. And when you bear your cross, you lose the privilege of being petty. I can't help but wonder if that's why so often the church today loses its perspective on what's really important. I can't help but ask, could that be why we are consumed with things that are trivial while we ignore the weightier matters of eternity? Could that be why we focus on things that are trivial and, and superficial rather than the things of substance? When I read this text, I see a man in Jacob who recognizes he doesn't have time for the things that are petty. Jacob is near death. He recognizes this. 
And as he is approaching his death, as I mentioned earlier, he recognizes that he's in a place he never dreamed of being. He's in Egypt. Never, never, I imagine, dreamed that he would actually be residing in Egypt. Not only that, but he is seeing a son that he never dreamed he would see again. You see, things in Jacob's life took turns that reminded him he was not actually in control. Jacob was a manipulator. He was a deceiver. He knew how to manipulate things to get the outcome that he wanted. He had manipulated his brother Esau so that Jacob would receive the blessing that was supposed to have been his. You see, the blessing is something that was passed from generation to generation. Isaac had received the blessing from his father Abraham. See, hundreds of years prior to this, Abraham had received the call of God. And it was a call by God's grace. Abraham was living in a place called Ur, which is southern Iraq. And God called him and he said, Abraham, follow me and I'm going to take you to a place that you've never been before. And you're going to walk by faith. I can't help but wonder if Abraham was the first child to complain, Are we there yet, Daddy? Are we there yet, Daddy? And God would say, Not yet, Abraham. We'll be there when we get there. And 800 miles later, they arrived in the land. God said to Abraham, You're home. This is the land. And Abraham, I'm going to multiply you. Your offspring will be like the sand on the seashores. Abraham, look up at the stars. You see those millions and millions of stars? Your descendants are going to be more numerous than those stars. And this land is going to be yours. And Abraham took that promise. And he passed it on to Isaac. See, the blessing is the favor of God. It's His grace. The promise is simply the vehicle of His grace. But the blessing is saying, Lord, You have smiled upon us by Your grace, by Your mercy. You have made these glorious promises to us. So Lord, let Your favor shine upon my children and upon their children. This blessing was passed to Isaac, who was the son of promise. He had been born to Abraham and to Sarah when they were very old. And that blessing was supposed to have been passed to Esau, who was the firstborn of Isaac. But God had different plans. And his plans took a very serendipitous route as Jacob works and he deceives his father after his brother had agreed to it. You see, Esau had come in from hunting and he was hungry and Jacob, being a manipulator, plays upon his brother's hunger and says, yeah, I'll be glad to feed you, but it's going to cost you. I'll give you a bowl of soup, but you've got to give me your blessing. And Esau, living for the moment, not looking in faith toward the future, says, I would rather have my belly filled now rather than my soul filled by God later agrees to Jacob's manipulation. Jacob then deceives his father so that he receives this blessing, this promise, the smile of God upon him rather than Esau. This idea of blessing seems very foreign to us. But it's something that we still desire. 
It's something that we still long for. I think as parents, we desire to pass along to our children. And as children, we desire to hear it from our parents. The blessing is that powerful moment when a father speaks the promise of God over his child or over his children, asking for God's blessing that they would know not just the promise of Abraham, but the promise of the gospel, the promise of Jesus Christ. For the father, it gives a sense of completion. The story will continue. The line will be passed along. God will fulfill his promise. For the son, for the child, it gives a sense of belonging, of approval, and of hope. Usually the blessing is passed along when the father or the patriarch would be at death's door. We don't have formal blessings today. As I've done informal surveys and I've talked with people about death, usually the answer is the same. Oh, pastor, I want to die quickly. I want it to be in my sleep. I don't want to be a trouble to nobody. I understand those sentiments. But biblically, the view is very different. As death approached, the patriarch wanted his family to gather around them, and the family wanted to gather around. Look what Joseph does when he hears that his father is ill. He recognizes Jacob's about to die. I want to get my grandchildren so they can be there with their grandfather and hear from him, hear him tell the story of God's faithfulness. This was the chance publicly to pass the faith along. And Jacob wanted the blessing so badly he deceived his father. And now Joseph, who was his favorite child, born of Rachel, comes to stand before him. Now, Joseph's story is an interesting one. Let's just be very frank about this. In Joseph's earlier life, Joseph was a bit of a jerk. Now, let's just say it like it was. Now, you can can give him a little bit of leeway because his father did pamper him, gave him the fancy coat. But Joseph, I believe, liked to lord it over his brothers. Joseph would have dreams where his brothers bowed down before him, and he was the baby. He was the youngest. Now, don't you know that irritated his older brothers? Yeah, Joseph, we've heard the dream before. Thank you for sharing it with us again. Joseph, if I get a chance, I'm going to let the love of God touch you in a powerful way. Well, eventually they did act. They took Joseph and they sold him into slavery. And then to cover up what they did to their little brother, they faked his death. They took the coat of many colors, dabbed it in blood, brought it to Jacob and said, Joseph's dead. Jacob grieved. That's why we can't even begin to imagine the the passion that he felt when he finds out that Joseph is alive. His son who he thought was dead is alive. And not only is he alive, he is the second in command in Egypt. You see, God was working. And what the brothers deemed for evil, God was using for good. And Joseph went from being a house slave to the second in command in Egypt. From somebody who is a servant to someone who is a sovereign over the land. And God is working through dreams to guide Joseph to provide for the land. There would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And God instructed Joseph, plan for the seven years of famine by storing up food. And that's what Joseph does. He's an administrator, 
trusted second-hand man to Pharaoh. And in that time of famine, Jacob ends up leading his family down into Egypt to live. Now, 17 years later, Jacob's about to die. Joseph goes to him with his boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. They want to see their grandfather before he passes away. But in the midst of this, something unusual happens. Not just something unusual, but something supernatural. Look at, look at the clue that is given to us in the text. Look in verse 2. It was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Now Jacob is in his deathbed. But look at what the next phrase says. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up. This is something that is, is supernatural, taking place of God. And it's a reminder of the faith and the power of God. Jacob is sick, but it's Israel who sets up in faith. This is not two different men. It's the same man who is shown to have two different parts to his life. Jacob was the name given to him by his earthly father. Israel is the name given to him by his heavenly father. Jacob recognized himself as the deceiver, the manipulator, the one who was a bit of a scoundrel who would make things go out the way he wanted them to go out. But Israel is the name given to him after he fought with God and at the moment of brokenness, the deceiver realizes he's not in control. Jacob's about to meet his brother Esau. And he thinks there's going to be a fight, a battle. And as he's alone, he wrestles with God and God touches his hip, dislocates it. And Jacob clings to this angel, this, this theophany, this visitation of God prior to Christ. And he says, I won't let go till you bless me. And God says, that's how you will be known from now on. Not as a deceiver, but the one who recognizes he must cling to God and seek the blessing of God above all else. And so now at the moment of death, it is the promise of God that strengthens him to set up and to say, this is what matters. Notice what he does. He begins speaking to Joseph in chapter in verse 3. And he tells the story. He tells the story of the promise. I will make you faithful. I will multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples. And I will give this land to your offspring after you as a gift from God. Now understand that the promise of the land is first of all that promise of security. Now, I can't speak for you. But I know as I get older, I reflect more and more upon my fond memories growing up in Athens at 522 Holt Street. It seems like at times that I'm stressful and just want to, to get away. I close my eyes and I picture it coming in at about, I come home at about 5, oh, 5 o'clock, 5.30 from basketball practice. Dad hadn't gotten home yet from work, but mom is in the kitchen with her apron around her. She's making chicken and dumplings. Give me just a moment. I set my stuff down and I sit down on the couch and she says, how was your day? And usually I would lay down and just feel safe and secure. You have those memories? That place where you feel secure? You see, that's what we long for. That's why we look back in childhood with fondness because you know what? As children, we had no worries. Mom and Dad were taking care of everything. But you know what? God has given us that. Not that we would get caught looking back, but that we would look forward 
The promise of the land is the promise of security and safety. To say my heavenly Father is in control of all things. And that's what I long for. The promise of the land was looking forward to a greater promise. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus Christ fulfills these promises in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 4, we are told that God has a greater land than Canaan or Israel in mind. It is the land given to us by Christ. And he says... If Joshua had brought them into that land, there wouldn't be a promise for another land. So he's saying that this promise here, given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob, and about to be given to Ephraim and Manasseh, is looking forward to something even greater than physical, geographical terrain upon this planet. It's looking toward the promise of God that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why he says, Israel, Jacob is looking ahead. I want you to think about this. He's in a place where every need he has is being provided for. His son is second in command in Egypt. His family's respected by Pharaoh. They had it made. They had everything that they wanted. But when it comes to the blessing, that's not what he wants to bequeath to his children. He doesn't say, I pray that you'll have all the possessions that you want. I pray that you'll live in luxury. God bless them to that end. He says, no, you look to the promises of God that he's going to do something greater than this world around us. Our challenge today in what we pass along to our children is to recognize that the stuff we work for, that we think this is what I want to pass along, land, houses, money, all of that will rust and dust one day. But what will last is teaching our children the gospel and about our God who is able to do all things. So we need to weigh out our time. What is it we're really working to pass along to our children? What if, they, what if they gain the whole world and lose their souls? Do we spend as much time investing the gospel truth into them as we do worrying about finances and stuff that doesn't matter? Now, I know the arguments, Pastor, we've got to have money to live. But I want to tell you, what God's looking for is faithfulness that values passing the blessing along. You know how I know that? When we think of the story of Jacob, we automatically go to Genesis 32. He wrestled with God. Well, man, that would have been terrifying, but at the same time, kind of cool. But man, that's what you've got to be remembered by. No, look up on the screens. You'll see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. The hall of faith where God records for us men and women who lived faithfully. And I want you to notice, what is Jacob honored for in his faith? That when he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. God says, you want to see the model of faithfulness? It's not when Jacob wrestled with me. It's when he looked beyond the pleasures of Egypt and recognized that the promise of God is greater and more valuable than all the comfort that the world gives. That's faith. That is living by faith and not by sight. Now, passing the faith along, living in such a way is challenging. And there are barriers. I mean, our own sin nature, we must overcome by God's grace and power. 
But there was a very practical thing that Jacob had to deal with. The blessing is passed from father to son, not father to grandchild. So here's his problem. He wants to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, but they're not his children. They're his grandchildren. Look how he handles this. I draw your attention down to verse 5. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, look at the next two words, are mine. You know what Jacob does? He adopts Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, they're no longer my grandchildren. They're going to be like, to me like Reuben and Simeon. Reuben and Simeon were his first and second born. He says, I'm bringing them into my family so they can experience the blessing from me so that I can pass it down. Now, I want to submit to you that what we are seeing here is an early paradigm, an early model of the gospel. We need to understand that the only way we can have the blessing of God, his favor, is by his grace given to us through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to get the blessing. That we would be forgiven of our sins by faith in Jesus who died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. But how can we get that blessing? We're not sons of God. We're not children of God. Look on the screens at Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We are made sons through Jesus. So... Just as Joseph brings his boys to his father to say, Daddy, here are my two sons. Will you bless them? And Jacob adopts them. Jesus, by his grace, brings us into the presence of God. We are adopted through Jesus so that we may receive the blessings of God through Christ. That's the gospel. He says, I'm not going to let that be a barrier to the blessing. I will adopt you as my own. And that's grace. Now, this grace takes a very surprising turn. I'm going to skip ahead. Next week, I'm going to come and camp out in verses 15 and 16. But something very unusual takes place in the midst of this blessing. Jacob comes to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. But he does something totally unexpected. I have a feeling that Joseph was a man who liked things organized. He had to be. He oversaw all the food in Egypt. Maybe Joseph had a little bit of OCD in him. I don't know. But he plans it out. Manasseh is Joseph's firstborn son. Ephraim is second. So he plans it out. He wants Manasseh to receive the greater blessing as the firstborn. Now, I'm a secondborn child. Okay, I've got an older brother. Whether I like it or not, biblically, the oldest son got the greater inheritance, but also the greater responsibility. So it kind of evened out in that, re that regard. So Joseph wants his father's right hand to rest on Manasseh's hand. So he puts Manasseh on his left. And he puts Ephraim on his right. So when he comes to his daddy, all his dad has to do is to sit out his hands, and his right hand is on Manasseh's head, and his left hand is on Ephraim's. But when they come, this is what Jacob does. He crosses his hands. We're not told why. Maybe it was just Jacob being Jacob. He wanted to do things a little different, but I think it's more than that. He says, I know. Joseph corrects him. Daddy, 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 daddy. No, 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 no. You need to put your hands back. And Jacob says, I know. I know. Listen, Joseph Manasseh is going to be blessed. Don't, don't worry about that. 
But Ephraim will receive the greater blessing, and even all your other children will be blessed through them. This reminds us of something very important. Grace is surprising. It's shocking. This went against the cultural protocol of the day. I think sometimes we forget the shocking nature of grace. And that God will do what He deems best according to His sovereign plan. The question will be this. Are we willing to trust His grace when things do not go how we think they ought to go? I've thought a lot about this. In fact, when Mother's Day rolled around, I reflected on the fact that usually here at Trinity on Mother's Day or Father's Day, we dedicate children to God. And all three of mine were up here. We're actually up there when we did the dedications. This is what has struck me. When we dedicate our children to the grace and the power of God, the truth is we have in our mind what we think God might do. God will make them a successful businessman and use that to spread his glory or by God's grace they'll become a, a teacher and impact many or they'll be a preacher or a missionary parents what if we dedicate our child to God God says the way I'm going to use your child is from a hospital bed in a hospice house are we still willing to trust him then to say, this is not the way I would have gone with my grace, oh God. This is not what I would have done. This was not my plan. But is God's grace any less sufficient? So when you and I, Dad, when you and I, Mom, and dedicate our children to God, it's got to be more than just lip service. It has to be this moment where we say, God, do you know what you're doing? To hear God say, I know. I know what I'm doing. Will you trust me? Will you look through eyes of faith and not the eyes that see the world? It's ironic that Jacob is blind, but he sees better than Joseph. And Joseph, who had all these dreams, doesn't realize what Jacob's doing. What eyes are we looking at things with? Are we judging things by the standard of the world? Worldly success as to how we want to influence children? Or are we looking through the eyes of faith and say, Lord, help me to pass along to my children something greater than the things of this world? What are you living for? You will pass along what you are. You may teach what you know, but you will reproduce what you are in the lives of your children. Let it be said, we are men of faith. Not perfect, but men of faith that seek to serve Him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. I'm going to be here at the front if you need to respond in any way. and You may just want to come and kneel at the kneeling bench to pray. There is always a challenge in preaching on Father's Day that we set the bar high. But you know what? God has set the bar. But here's the good news. 
He grants us the strength we need to live faithfully. God has not called us and then left us on our own to wonder how to do things. He has given us His Holy Spirit. He has given us the body of believers. He has given us His Word. And most of all, by faith, He has given us the righteousness of Jesus. What will we do with what He has given? I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Then after this prayer, we will stand together. And when we stand, we'll start to sing. And if you need to come and pray, the, the altar is open for that. Or if you need just to, someone to pray with you, I'll be available. Nathan, other staff members, other deacons. Just be obedient to the Lord. Father, give us eyes to see.